Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. is Democracy Now! We believe that the evidence described by my colleagues today and assembled throughout our hearings warrants a criminal referral of former President Donald J. Trump, John Eastman, and others for violations of this statute. The whole purpose and obvious effect of Trump's scheme were to obstruct influence and impede this official proceeding, the central moment for the lawful transfer of power in the United States. The House January 6th Select Committee has unanimously voted to refer Donald Trump to the Justice Department to face criminal charges, including aiding an insurrection, as he attempted to overturn the 2020 election. We'll get response and air excerpts from the committee's final public hearing. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol has wrapped up its 18-month probe by recommending criminal charges against former President Donald Trump. At the committee's final public hearing Monday, Maryland Democratic Congressmember Jamie Raskin said Trump betrayed his oath of office by assisting in an insurrection against the constitutional order. The committee believes that more than sufficient evidence exists for a criminal referral of former President Trump for assisting or aiding and comforting those at the Capitol who engaged in a violent attack on the United States. The committee has developed significant evidence that President Trump intended to disrupt the peaceful transition of power under our Constitution. After headlines, we'll air clips from the January 6th committee's final hearing and spend the rest of the hour discussing its findings. Zuri selection got underway Monday in the trial of the former leader of the far-right Proud Boys organization and four of his associates. Enrique Tario and the others each faced nine counts, including seditious conspiracy against the United States after they heeded then-President Donald Trump's call to, quote, fight like hell at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. All five men have pleaded not guilty. Their attorneys have argued their actions were constitutionally protected free speech. 
In immigration news, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts Monday temporarily blocked the Biden administration from ending the contested Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy that was set to end Wednesday. Roberts gave Biden officials until this afternoon to respond to an emergency appeal filed by several Republican-led states challenging the policy's termination. Title 42 has been enforced since March 2020, used to expel over 2 million migrants from the U.S.-Mexico border, blocking them from seeking asylum. Thousands have been forced to wait in Mexico, where they hoped they would be finally allowed to safely enter the U.S. to apply for relief when Title 42 was lifted this week. This is Emily Rivas, an asylum seeker from Venezuela who's been stuck in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, across the border from El Paso, Texas. Please soften the heart of the president. Let all the people cross into the U.S. We have suffered a great deal, a great deal since we left Venezuela. We traveled through the jungle and all those countries we have been through. I ask him from the bottom of my heart that they allow us to cross. Human rights groups in the United Kingdom have vowed to keep fighting an immigration policy that allows the British government to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda. On Monday, a court ruled the program is legal under British and international law. The policy was first announced in April. Paul O'Connor of the Public and Commercial Services Union denounced the ruling. We were clear right from the outset that our members didn't want to carry out this policy on a basis they thought it was unlawful, morally reprehensible and utterly inhumane. The judges today may well have found that decision to be lawful, but it remains morally reprehensible and utterly inhumane. And we will continue to do all we can to fight this policy. In Iran, the body of a 23-year-old protester who recently died in police custody showed signs of severe torture, according to his family. The body of Hamid Salashur, who was a taxi driver, was exhumed by his family after security forces buried him, claiming he died of a heart attack after he was detained in late November and disappeared for four days. After viewing his remains, Salashur's family said his face was smashed, his nose, jaw and chin broken and that he had stitches going from his neck to his navel and over his kidneys. This comes as the parents of a young man are pleading for their son's life as he faces execution over his involvement in the anti-government protesters. The father of Mehdi Mohamed Karami appealed to Iranian officials in a video posted on social media. I'm pleading desperately for judicial authorities, for Mr. Ajayi himself, to remove this death sentence from my son's case. Amnesty International warns at least 26 people are at risk of being executed for participating in the mass protests in Iran that have taken place over in the streets since September. Palestinians in the Israeli-occupied West Bank have declared a one-day general strike to mourn the death of prisoner Nasser Abu Hamid. The 49-year-old Palestinian had been held in an Israeli prison since his arrest in 2002 for his involvement in an armed wing of the ruling Fatah party. He was diagnosed from prison with late-stage lung cancer in August of 2021. His family says Israeli prison authorities ignored his medical complaints for months, leading him to die of medical neglect. Human rights groups say dozens of other Palestinian prisoners have died of preventable diseases due to a lack of routine health checks. Meanwhile, Israel's deported French-Palestinian activist and lawyer Salah Hamouri to France in a move condemned by human rights groups and the French foreign ministry.
Before his deportation Sunday, Hamouri had been held without charge under Israel's so-called administrative detention law since his arrest in March. Hamouri is a longtime resident of East Jerusalem, which Israel's occupied since 1967. U.N. human rights spokesperson Jeremy Lawrence said in a statement, quote, deporting a protected person from occupied territory is a grave breach of the Fourth Geneva Convention, constituting a war crime, he said. In Sudan, security forces fired tear gas and stun grenades Monday to disperse thousands of people protesting military rule. The protest in the capital, Khartoum, came on the fourth anniversary of the start of the uprising that toppled the longtime authoritarian President Omar al-Bashir. It came two weeks after Sudan's ruling military junta and pro-democracy groups signed a deal to gradually prepare Sudan for its first election and transition to civilian rule after the October 21 military coup. Protesters who took to the streets Monday rejected that agreement, saying it would leave coup leaders in power for at least two more years. The revolution will continue and will not stop. Our basic demand is to live a decent life in this country, and we will not give up our rights in any way. Even if agreements were signed between politicians and soldiers, this is not what the Sudanese people want. Russian President Vladimir Putin visited the capital of Belarus on Monday for talks with his counterpart, President Alexander Lukashenko. Amidst growing fears, Russia is preparing to launch a new invasion from Ukraine's neighbor to the north. Lukashenko has allowed the Kremlin to use Belarus as a staging ground throughout Russia's offensive in Ukraine. On Monday, Putin dismissed concerns Russia might annex Belarus, a former Soviet republic. Russia is not interested in absorbing anyone. It just doesn't make any sense. In Washington, D.C., State Department spokesperson Ned Price called Putin's statement the height of irony, pointing to Russia's unilateral annexation of four territories of Ukraine last September. In Canada, six people are dead, including the gunman, after a man with a semi-automatic handgun opened fire on the suburban Toronto condominium building where he lived. Three of the victims were members of the condominium board. The gunman, a 73-year-old with a history of harassing property managers and his neighbors, was shot dead by police. In labor news, thousands of Uber drivers in New York City led a 24-hour strike Monday after the ride-hailing corporation blocked pay raises the drivers were scheduled to receive this month. This is Ibrahim Ghori, a Lyft and Uber driver and a member of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. We should be able to spend time with our families, get vacation with our kids, because you go out there every single day to make that happen. We want to take our kids to college, give them education they need in the near future. That's why this fight is for us, for all drivers across the country. A New York Republican, newly elected to Congress, appears to have fabricated key parts of his education and employment history, according to an investigation by The New York Times, which found Congressmember-elect George Santos lied when he told voters he worked for Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. The IRS says an animal rescue group Santos claims to have led, called Friends of Pets United, did not file any records indicating it had tax-exempt status, as Santos claimed. The New York Times also found Santos 
Santos faced criminal charges for check fraud in Brazil at a time when he claimed to be attending classes at Baruch College, which has no enrollment records for Santos. And Santos falsely claimed his company lost four employees at the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando in June 2016. In November, Santos made history as the first openly gay Republican to win a House seat as a non-incumbent representing a district in Long Island and Queens that previously favored Democrats. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has yet to comment on the Times investigation. Many House Democrats are calling on McCarthy to block Santos from being seated when the 118th Congress is sworn in next month. And in Los Angeles, Harvey Weinstein has been convicted on additional three charges of rape and sexual assault. The convictions were related to one survivor, an Italian model identified only as Jane Doe number 1, who testified Weinstein raped her in a hotel room in 2013. The jury acquitted Weinstein of one charge and were deadlocked on three other charges involving two other survivors. Jennifer Siebel Newsom, the first partner of California Governor Governor Gavin Newsom and Lauren Young. The district attorney's office will determine whether it will retry Weinstein on those counts. This is attorney Gloria Allred speaking about her client Lauren Young after the verdict was announced Monday. She's very happy that there were convictions in this case. Uh, and she also indicates that if, as and when, the prosecution decides to prosecute uh, Mr. Weinstein, again, she is willing to testify again in a third criminal trial against Mr. Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein is already serving a 23-year prison sentence for rape and criminal sexual assault in New York, though he is appealing those convictions. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back from break, the House January 6th committee has unanimously voted to refer President Donald Trump to the Justice Department to face criminal charges, including aiding an insurrection for his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Stay with us. And if I die today, I'll be the happy phantom. And I'll go chasing the nuns out in the yard. And I'll run naked through the street with all my mask on. And I will never need umbrellas in the rain. I wake up in strawberry feet every day And the atrocities of school I can't forgive The happy phantom has no right This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol unanimously voted Monday to refer Donald Trump to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution for attempting to overturn the 2020 election. This marks the first time in U.S. history a congressional committee has recommended criminal charges against a former president.
The committee advised that Trump should face four charges, including obstructing an official proceeding, conspiring to defraud the U.S., and inciting and aiding an insurrection. The committee has also recommended charges against attorney John Eastman, who advised Trump on an illegal scheme to overturn the election. In addition, the committee accused four Republican members of the House, including House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, of violating congressional ethics rules by defying subpoenas from the House committee. The other three Republicans are Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Jim Jordan of Ohio, and Andy Biggs of Arizona. The January 6th committee is expected to release its final report Wednesday. The committee also plans to release additional transcripts and documents from its 18-month investigation. During his opening statement during Monday's hearing, the chair of the January 6th committee, Congressmember Benny Thompson, said Trump needs to be held accountable. This committee is nearing the end of its work. But as the country, we remain in strange and uncharted waters. We've never had a president of the United States stir up a violent attempt to block the transfer of power. I believe nearly two years later, this is still a time of reflection and reckoning. If we are to survive as a nation of laws and democracy, this can never happen again. How do we stop it? This committee will lay out a number of recommendations in this final report. But beyond any specific details and recommendations we present, there's one factor I believe is most important in preventing another January 6th, accountability. So today, beyond our findings, we will also show that evidence we've gathered points to further action beyond the power of this committee or the Congress to help ensure accountability under law. Accountability that can only be found in the criminal justice system. Republican Congressmember Liz Cheney, the vice chair of the January 6th committee, voted along with fellow Republican committee member Adam Kinzinger to refer Trump to the Justice Department for potential prosecution. Cheney condemned Trump's actions January 6th. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. Later in the program, we'll be joined by two guests to talk more about committee's criminal referral. But first, let's turn to the extended excerpts from Monday's January 6th committing hearing, their final hearing. This is Democrat Zoe Lofgren of California. Throughout the post-election period, ex-President Trump was told repeatedly by his campaign advisors, government officials, and others there was no evidence to support his claims of election fraud. Even since our last hearing, the Select Committee has obtained testimony from new witnesses who've come forward to tell us about their conversations with ex-President Trump on this topic. Here is one of his senior advisors, Hope Hicks. Seeing evidence of fraud on a scale that would have impacted the outcome of the election. And I was becoming increasingly concerned that we were damaging um, 
we were damaging his legacy. Uh, what did the president say in response to what you just described? He said something along the lines of, um, you know, nobody will care about my legacy if I lose. Um, so that won't matter. Um, the only thing that matters is is winning. The chair recognizes the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Kingsinger, for an opening statement. Certainly one of the many important components of our federal government is the Department of Justice. It's the body that it's responsible for enforcing our laws and investigating criminal wrongdoing. For this reason, it's of the utmost importance that our Department of Justice operates as a fair and neutral body that enforces our federal laws without fear or without favor. It is this critical function that President Trump sought to corrupt, as he sought to use the Department of Justice to investigate and prosecute purported election fraud and to help him convince the public that the election was stolen. The Select Committee has made the following findings with respect to the Department of Justice. In the weeks immediately following the 2020 election, Attorney General Bill Barr advised President Trump that the Department of Justice had not seen any evidence to support Trump's theory that the election was stolen by fraud. No evidence. Over the course of the three meetings in this post-election period, Attorney General Barr assured President Trump that the Justice Department was properly investigating claims of election fraud. He debunked numerous election fraud claims, many of which the President would then go on to repeat publicly. And he made clear that President Trump was doing, quote, a great, great disservice to the country by pursuing them. After Attorney General Barr's resignation, President Trump requested that the acting leadership of the department, Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue, quote, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. In other words, just tell a small lie to put the facade of legitimacy on this lie and the Republican congressman and I can distort and destroy and create doubt all ourselves. Between December 23rd and January 3rd, President Trump called or met with them nearly every day and was told repeatedly the department investigation showed no factual support for Trump's fraud allegations. Mr. Rosen and Mr. Donahue told him that the fraud claims were simply untrue. As Mr. Rosen and Mr. Donahue continued to resist, President Trump then tried to install a loyalist named Jeffrey Clark to lead the department as acting attorney general. On several occasions, Clark met with the president, apparently along with Representative Scott Perry, without authorization, promising to take the actions that Barr, Rosen, and Donahue had refused to take. In particular, Mr. Clark intended to send a letter that he had drafted with the help of a political appointee that the White House installed at DOJ with just weeks left in the administration. Mr. Clark intended to send the letter to officials in numerous states, informing them falsely, of course, that the department had identified significant concerns about the election results in their state and encouraging their state legislatures to come into special session to consider appointing Trump rather than Biden electors. 
Here's Acting Deputy Attorney General Donahue describing his reaction to Mr. Clark's proposed letter. Some drafting letters without the knowledge of what the department had actually done in terms of investigations, that he was being reckless. And I recall toward the end saying, what you're proposing is nothing less than the United States Justice Department meddling in the outcome of a presidential election. Knowing that existing department leadership would not support his false election claims, President Trump offered Mr. Clark the job of acting attorney general. In a dramatic January 3rd meeting in the Oval Office, Rosen Donahue, White House counsel Pat Cipollone, and White House lawyer Eric Hirschman strongly objected to the appointment of Jeffrey Clark as acting attorney general. Mr. Clark pleaded his case and offered to send the letter that he had drafted. The White House counsel called the Clark letter, quote, a murder-suicide pact. Numerous White House and Department of Justice lawyers all threatened to resign if Mr. Clark was appointed. Donald Trump would be leading a graveyard. It was only after the threat of mass resignations that President Trump rescinded his offer to Mr. Clark. The chair recognizes the gentleman from California, Mr. Aguilar, for an opening statement. John Eastman admitted in advance of the 2020 election that Mike Pence could not lawfully refuse to count official electoral votes. But he nevertheless devised a meritless proposal that deployed a combination of bogus election fraud claims and the fake electoral ballots to say that Mike Pence, presiding over the joint session, could reject legitimate electoral votes for President-elect Biden. But still, President Trump accepted and repeated Eastman's theory and used it to pressure the vice president to take unlawful action. In multiple heated conversations, President Trump directly pressured Vice President Pence to adopt the Eastman theory and either reject the electors or send them back to the state legislatures. The vice president consistently resisted and repeatedly told the president that he did not possess the authority to do what President Trump directed. This culminated in an angry phone call on the morning of January 6th between President Trump and Vice President Pence, during which the former president repeatedly berated Mr. Pence by cursing and leveling threats. White House staffer Nick Luna was one of the many witnesses who heard the call as it happened. Take a listen at Mr. Luna's testimony. Did you hear any part of the phone call, even if just this, the end that the president was speaking from? I did, yes. All right, and what did you hear? So as I was dropping off the note, um, I, I, my memory, I remember hearing the word wimp. Either he called him a wimp. I don't remember if he said, you are a wimp, you'll be a wimp. Wimp is the word I remember. Something to the effect, this is the word he's wrong. I made the wrong decision four or five years ago. In the face of the vice president's resistance, the former president and others exerted both private and public pressure to change his mind. In his speech on the Ellipse on the afternoon of January 6th, former President Trump told the crowd that Vice President Pence needed the courage to do what he has to do. Once the riot began, President Trump deliberately chose to issue a tweet attacking Mr. Pence, knowing that the crowd had already grown violent. Almost immediately thereafter, the crowd around the Capitol surged, and between 2.30 and 2.35 p.m., the Metropolitan Police line on the west front of the Capitol broke. 
This was the first time in MPD history that a line like this had broken. Rioters at the Capitol were heard chanting, hang Mike Pence, through the afternoon. As a result of this unrest, Vice President Pence was forced to flee to a secure location where he actively coordinated with law enforcement and other governmental officials to address the ongoing violence. The chair recognizes the gentlewoman from Florida, Ms. Murphy, for an opening statement. The Department of Justice, Mike Pence, and many others stood up for the rule of law and resisted the president's wishes. In that way, our American institutions held after the 2020 election. But that did not stop President Trump. Instead, he turned to his supporters, those who believed his lies about a stolen election. He summoned a crowd to the nation's capital on January 6, hoping that they would pressure Congress to do what he could not do on his own. The Select Committee has made the following findings on this issue. Two years ago today, in the early morning hours of December 19th, Donald Trump sent a tweet urging his supporters to travel to Washington for a protest on January 6th. Be there. We'll be wild, he tweeted. Between December 19th and January 6th, the president repeatedly encouraged his supporters to come to Washington. The president's December 19th tweet galvanized domestic violent extremists, including members of the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and organized militia groups. These individuals began organizing to come to the Capitol in large numbers with the specific intent to use violence to disrupt the certification of the election during the joint session. Prior to January 6, the FBI, Secret Service, U.S. Capitol Police, D.C. government and other law enforcement agencies gathered substantial evidence suggesting the risk of violence at the Capitol during the joint session. Prior to January... Sorry. These included warnings like the following. Their plan is to literally kill people. Please, please take this tip seriously and investigate further. President Trump supporters have proposed a movement to occupy Capitol Hill. Alert regarding the VP being a dead man walking if he doesn't do the right thing. I saw several other alerts saying they will storm the Capitol if he doesn't do the right thing. In the days leading up to January 6, President Trump's advisors explicitly told him that he should encourage his supporters to be peaceful that day, but he refused. One witness, Hope Hicks, provided the committee with records of her text messages on January 6. In one exchange with another staffer, he texted her, Hey, I know you're seeing this, but he, referring to President Trump, really should tweet something about being nonviolent. I'm not there, Hicks replied. I suggested it several times Monday and Tuesday, and he refused. When Ms. Hicks came in to provide testimony to the committee, we asked her about this exchange. Her explanation is that the he in this text wasn't the president, but rather it was Eric Hirschman. Take a listen to her testimony. When you wrote, I suggested it several times, and it presumably means that the president say something about being nonviolent. He wrote, I suggested it several times Monday and Tuesday, and he refused. Tell us what happened. Um, sure. I, I didn't speak to the president about this directly, but I communicated um, people like Eric Hirschman um, that it was my view that it was important that the president put out some kind of message in advance of the event. 
And what was Mr. Hirschman's response? Um, Mr. Hirschman said that he had made the same, you know, recommendation um, directly to the president um, and that he had refused. Just so I understand, Mr. Hirschman said that he had already recommended to the president that the president convey a message that people should be peaceful on January 6th, and the president had refused to do that? Yes. The chair recognizes the gentlewoman from Virginia, Mrs. Luria, for an opening statement. These are the select committee's findings about President Trump's dereliction of duty. From the outset of the violence and for several hours that followed, people at the Capitol, people inside President Trump's administration, elected officials of both parties, members of President Trump's own family, and even Fox News commentators who were sympathetic to President Trump, all tried to contact the White House to urge him to do one singular thing, the one thing that all of these people immediately understood was required, instruct his supporters to leave the Capitol. The President repeatedly refused pleas as he watched the violence at the Capitol on television. During the day, the President never spoke with National Guard, the Department of Defense, the Department of Justice, or any law enforcement agency. At no point during the day, or any other, did he issue any order to deploy any law enforcement agency to assist. Multiple witnesses, including President Trump's White House counsel, testified to these facts. Your White House employees, who had been speaking directly with President Trump, state that he didn't want anything done. The President was making phone calls that afternoon, but they weren't to law enforcement officials. Rather, President Trump continued to call his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Both President Trump and Mr. Giuliani spoke with congressional leaders, even after, the violence, even after the violence had begun, to encourage them to continue delaying the session. Approximately three hours after being informed of the violence at the Capitol, hours during which, as our evidence has shown, Donald Trump sat in his dining room and watched the violence on television, the President released a video statement in which he again repeated that the election was stolen told his supporters at the Capitol that he loved them and ultimately suggested that they disperse. The statement had an immediate impact on elements of the crowd, many of whom who have testified that it led them to depart the Capitol. At 6.01 p.m., President Trump sent his last tweet of the day. He did not condemn the violence. Instead, he attempted to justify it. These are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away, he wrote. Remember this day forever. There's no doubt that President Trump thought that the actions of the rioters were justified. In the days after January 6th, he spoke to several different advisors. And in those conversations, he minimized the seriousness of the attack. Here is new testimony from another one of President Sr.'s advisors, Kellyanne Conway. You said you talked to the President the next day. Tell us about that conversation on the 7th. Yeah, I don't think it was very long. I just said that was just a terrible day. I'm working on a, a long statement. I said it's crazy. What did he say? Uh, no, these people are upset. They're very upset. In the days following the attack, President Trump also expressed a desire to pardon those involved in the attack. Since then, he suggested that he will do so if he returns to the Oval Office. 
The chair recognizes the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Raskin, for an opening statement. The first criminal statute we invoke for referral, therefore, is Title 18, Section 1512C, which makes it unlawful for anyone to corruptly obstruct, influence, or impede any official proceeding of the United States government. We believe that the evidence described by my colleagues today and assembled throughout our hearings warrants a criminal referral of former President Donald J. Trump, John Eastman, and others for violations of this statute. The whole purpose and obvious effect of Trump's scheme were to obstruct, influence, and impede this official proceeding, the central moment for the lawful transfer of power in the United States. Second, we believe that there is more than sufficient evidence to refer former President Donald J. Trump, John Eastman, and others for violating Title 18, Section 371. This statute makes it a crime to conspire to defraud the United States. In other words, to make an agreement to impair, obstruct, or defeat the lawful functions of the United States government by deceitful or dishonest means. Former President Trump did not engage in a plan to defraud the United States acting alone. He entered into agreements, formal and informal, with several other individuals who assisted him with his criminal objectives. Our report describes in detail the actions of numerous co-conspirators who agreed with and participated in Trump's plan to impair, obstruct, and defeat the certification of President Biden's electoral victory. That said, the subcommittee does not attempt to determine all of the potential participants in this conspiracy, as our understanding of the role of many individuals may be incomplete even today because they refuse to answer our questions. We trust that the Department of Justice will be able to form a far more complete picture through its own investigation. Third, We make a referral based on Title 18, Section 1001, which makes it unlawful to knowingly and willfully make materially false statements to the federal government. The evidence clearly suggests that President Trump conspired with others to submit slates of fake electors to Congress and the National Archives. We believe that this evidence we set forth in our report is more than sufficient for a criminal referral of former President Donald J. Trump and others in connection with this offense. As before, we don't try to determine all of the participants in this conspiracy, many of whom refuse to answer our questions while under oath. We trust that the Department of Justice will be able to form a more complete picture through its own investigation. The fourth and final statute we invoke for referral is Title 18, Section 2383. The statute applies to anyone who incites, assists, or engages in insurrection against the United States of America and anyone who gives aid or comfort to an insurrection. An insurrection is a rebellion against the authority of the United States. It is a grave federal offense. 
anchored in the Constitution itself, which repeatedly opposes insurrections and domestic violence, and indeed uses participation in insurrection by office holders as automatic grounds for disqualification from ever holding public office again at the federal or state level. Anyone who incites others to engage in rebelling, assists them in doing so, or gives aid and comfort to those engaged in insurrection is guilty of a federal crime. The committee believes that more than sufficient evidence exists for a criminal referral of former President Trump for assisting or aiding and comforting those at the Capitol who engaged in a violent attack on the United States. The committee has developed significant evidence that President Trump intended to disrupt the peaceful transition of power under our Constitution. The President has an affirmative and primary constitutional duty to act to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Nothing could be a greater betrayal of this duty than to assist in insurrection against the constitutional order. The complete factual basis for this referral is set forth in detail throughout our report. These are not the only statutes that are potentially relevant to President Trump's conduct related to the 2020 election. Depending on evidence developed by the Department of Justice, the president's actions could certainly trigger other criminal violations. Nor are President Trump and his immediate team the only people identified for referrals in our report. As part of our investigation, we asked multiple members of Congress to speak with us about issues critical to our understanding of this attack on the 2020 election and our system of constitutional democracy. None agreed to provide that essential information. As a result, we took the significant step of issuing them subpoenas based on the volume of information particular members possessed about one or more parts of President Trump's plans to overturn the election. None of the subpoenaed members complied, and we are now referring four members of Congress for appropriate sanction by the House Ethics Committee for failure to comply with lawful subpoenas. Mr. Chairman, we understand the gravity of each and every referral we are making today, just as we understand the magnitude of the crime against democracy that we describe in our report. But we have gone where the facts and the law lead us, and inescapably, they lead us here. I now recognize the young woman from Virginia, Ms. Luria, for a motion. Mr. Chairman, I move that the committee favorably report to the House the Select Committee's final report, which includes the committee's legislative recommendations and criminal referrals of Donald J. Trump and others, pursuant to Section 4A of House Resolution 503. The question is on the motion to favorably report to the House. Those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed, no. In the opinion of the chair, the ayes have it. The ayes have it. That was the House Select January 6th Committee voting unanimously Monday to refer President Donald Trump to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution for attempting to overturn the 2020 election. When we come back, Robert Weissman, head of Public Citizen, and NYU historian Ruth Ben-Ghiat, the author of Strongman, Mussolini to the Present. Stay with us.
Questions of Agency by Vijay Iyer. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we continue to look at the House January 6th committee's vote to refer President Donald Trump to the Justice Department to face criminal charges for attempting to overturn the 2020 election. During its final hearing Monday, the committee aired what could be called an insurrection mixtape of excerpts from previous hearings um, that includes footage of the attack on the Capitol, depositions, mainly Republican voices, Trump lawyers, assistants, and family members. This excerpt begins with U.S. Capitol Police Officer Carolyn Edwards. There were officers on the ground. They were bleeding. They were throwing up. I mean, I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. As I was swarmed by a violent mob, they ripped off my badge, they grabbed and stripped me of my radio, they seized ammunition that was secured to my body. They began to beat me with their fists and with what felt like hard metal objects. The key thing to do is to claim victory. No, we won. you. Sorry, over. We won. You're wrong. you. Right out of the box on election night, the president... uh, claimed that there was major fraud underway. I mean, this happened, as far as I could tell, before there was actually any potential of looking at evidence. I didn't think what was happening was necessarily honest or professional at that point in time. So that led to me stepping away. Generally discussed on that topic was whether the fraud, maladministration, abuse, or irregularities Uh, if aggregated and read most favorably to the campaign, would that be outcome determinative? And um, I think everyone's assessment in the room, at least amongst the staff, Mark Short, myself, and Greg Jacob, was that it was not sufficient to be outcome determinative. I told him that I did believe, yes, that once those legal processes were run, uh, if fraud had not been established, that had affected the outcome of the election, then unfortunately I believe that what had to be done was concede the outcome. What were the chances of President Trump winning the election? After that point? Yes. None. So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. The numbers are the numbers. The numbers don't lie. We had many allegations, and we investigated every single one of them. Did uh, one of them uh, make a comment that uh, they didn't have evidence, but they had a lot of theories? That was Mr. Giuliani. And and what exactly did he say, and how did that come up? My recollection, he said, we've got lots of theories, we just don't have the evidence. You're asking me to do something that's never been done in history, the history of the United States— And I'm going to put my state through that without sufficient proof. Part of a 10-minute insurrection mixtape that the House Select Committee on the attack on the Capitol played at the beginning of their final hearing on Monday. 
We're joined now by two guests. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history at New York University, author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, also publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy. And joining us in Washington, D.C., Robert Weissman, president of Public Citizen. Before we go to the technical aspects of what this means for a House Select Committee to refer criminal charges, first time ever, against a former president, uh, Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, I want to talk about the significance significance of that moment and what this means for today, what you took from uh, what happened yesterday before Wednesday, they'll release their report. But yesterday, the referral of criminal charges against a president. Well, first of all, I felt profoundly grateful that we still live in a democracy where this investigation and this committee could even exist. And that uh, the second that I felt uh, how important it is to assert accountability, to assert the rule of law, and to say that no one is above the law. Because, you know, Trump, like other authoritarians, spent a lot of effort creating a personality cult and a devoted mass of followers who think he is untouchable and also admire him because he transgresses. The essence of authoritarianism is getting away with it. And this is the glamour of the strongman. So this uh, criminal referral says, no, you, you are a mortal like everyone else, and you can be held accountable. Robert Weissman, uh, head of Public Citizen, if you can talk about um, these four criminal charges, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, false statements to the federal government, and inciting or assisting an insurrection, these are the criminal charges that the House Select Committee is referring to the Justice Department. Yeah, I think what's important about them is maybe two things. One, you know, for those of us who are watching January 6th unfold in real time, it sort of seemed as a rally that sort of spun out of control. And what the January 6th committee has showed beyond any doubt and is now uh, referenced in the referral to the Justice Department is that the insurrection was planned and intentional. In fact, we have reason to believe that Trump actually hoped to be at the Capitol leading the physical insurrection. So it wasn't something that was an accident or a spur-of-the-moment thing. It was part of an overall scheme. That's, I think, the first point. The second thing that the committee has shown and is, again, reflected in the referral is that the insurrection itself was part of a broader scheme to overthrow the election. Again, in real time, I think a lot of us seeing what happened after the election in November of 2020 thought this stuff was just sort of child's play and kind of Trump sort of working out his own psychodrama, claiming there was a fraud and a lie when uh, a fraud and again, with the election when there never had been. But what we now know is that there was an actual orchestrated significant scheme that could have succeeded to overthrow the election. And so the four charges together reflect both those things, the intentionality behind the insurrection and the, over, the multifaceted overall scheme that Trump led, masterminded, orchestrated, and nearly succeeded in carrying out.
and talk about technically what this means, that this House Select Committee is referring criminal charges to the Justice Department. The Justice Department is investigating separately. They don't need this to indict the president. But so what does it mean? Well, that's right. The Justice Department is going to make its own determination. They're free to ignore, if they choose, uh, what the House committee has now referred to them. But I think they're not going to ignore it. For one thing, the committee has generated a lot of evidence that's now going to be made available to the Justice Department, and that should inform the decision that the Justice Department takes. I think what's going to be really important for the reasons that Chairman Thompson laid out at the beginning, and as Ruth just said, that the Justice Department proceed with a prosecution. There are going to be a lot of reforms proposed. The House Republicans are not likely to move forward with them. Um, one significant reform is going to probably be achieved in legislation in the next couple of days to deal with the mechanism of counting electoral votes. But at the end of the day, the most important thing to prevent this kind of coup from ever taking place again is accountability for the people at the top. And most importantly, for the single person who masterminded it, uh, Donald Trump. Now, whether the Justice Department proceeds with this, that decision has now been kicked over, at least in the first instance, away from the actual uh, leadership of the Justice Department to a special prosecutor, Jack Smith. Hopefully, he's going to make the decision soon to proceed with an investigation and have the Attorney General Merrick Garland agree that that should take place. The longer they wait, the harder it's going to be politically to proceed with a prosecution. Now, Jack Smith, uh, Professor Ben-Ghiat, is an interesting guy. He served as head of the Justice Department Public Integrity Unit in 2010. He served in The Hague, um, prosecuting war crimes. He was also involved in New York City in the uh, prosecution of a group of New York City police officers involved in the 1997 attack on ha Abner Louima, the Haitian immigrant who was raped, sodomized and attacked by New York City police. Um, can you talk about Jack Smith and more significantly also what that history means from uh, police corruption and violence to The Hague. We'll set to uh, assess um, the activities of, um, just keeping to Trump for the moment, of somebody uh, like Trump who has such a broad range of criminality. You know, it's there is no one else in America, I can think of Berlusconi in Italy uh, as a partial uh, equivalent, who is criminal in so many ways as Trump. So the fact that uh, Jack Smith has prosecuted, you know, a sitting politician, he's done corruption cases because, of course, we heard, you know, that one of the charges is that Trump was trying to defraud the U.S. government and fraud is what he does, right? Let's remember that when Trump ran for office in 2016, he was um, under investigation for fraud for Trump University. And then, of course, the, the, the prosecuting in The Hague is extremely important because, you know, this has never happened before, but Donald Trump is somebody who's different than any president we've ever had, Republican or Democrat, because he is an autocratic individual. The people he admires, the leaders he admires are autocrats, and he has no regard for human life whatsoever. And so he would commit war crimes if he could. Indeed, we heard from uh, John Kelly and Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's book that he wanted, he was disappointed that his generals were not acting like Hitler's generals. 
So Jack Smith, uh, with his range of experience, seems to be the perfect person that we have been sent at this moment in time. Now, Professor Benghia, it's not only uh, President Trump who has got these criminal charges referred against him, also his lawyer, John Eastman. Can you talk about the significance of this? Yeah, um, there's a, a little sub-theme in authoritarian history of the, the lawyers of uh, authoritarians, and uh, many of them go to jail. Berlusconi's lawyer is only one who, of many who went to jail. Um, we have also Michael Cohen. But it's very important, uh, you know, this, they chose not to investigate the role of institutions, the FBI, the Secret Service, derelictions of duty, but it's very important to have broadened the scope because um, this was, again, not just a violent insurrection, but a, an elite. Elites are very important to pulling off coups. And Eastman was kind of one of the minds of, of the coup and connected to the Claremont Institute. And when you look back in history, uh, you need this kind of buy-in from elites who have these theories and come up with plans that then get implemented by the chief instigator. And so I was very pleased to see the name of Eastman there. Uh, Rob Weissman, also uh, referring to the Ethics Committee, those Congress members, um, this bipartisan committee's colleagues who refused to participate um, in what so many others, Republican advisors, lawyers, even family members, did um, in terms of cooperating with the committee. And this includes the man who's running to be House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, Kevin McCarthy is fascinating. I think that, the, you know, the information that McCarthy didn't want to share is that he actually was very upset, felt personally, physically threatened on the day of the January 6th coup attempt insurrection and called the president, called uh, the chief of staff and made that clear. He didn't want to be on the record about that because he knew what that might mean for his efforts now to become Speaker of the House. The other three, uh, and, and especially two of them, seem to be pretty actively involved in carrying out the, the conspiracy. Uh, that's information we don't quite know, exactly what their individual roles were. Um, we may learn quite a bit more about that in the final report coming out from the committee tomorrow. And we'll talk more about that in the coming days on Democracy Now! Um, finally, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, um, again— President Trump has not been charged. Um, the House will now switch to be uh, Republican-led, but the Justice Department doesn't change. Do you, can you explain what happens next? Um, I'm not a legal expert, but, um, you know, one thing that came out yesterday, which is so important for democracy prevention, is that the only reason that Jeffrey Clark uh, was not appointed, and this is what autocrats do, they politicize justice, they put loyalists in there, was that there was mass resignations threatened by DOJ employees. And this assertion of professional ethics is itself a form of democracy prevention. And so civil service, some people think, oh, it's boring, the civil service. But it's absolutely essential because these are the people whose individual actions add up to, in this case, added up to a, a block on an autocratic move. So the culture of the DOJ is very important. And so we'll, we'll see what they choose to do. 
Ruth Ben-Ghiat, we want to thank you for being with us, a historian, professor of history at New York University, author of the book Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present, and Robert Weissman, president of Public Citizen. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.